The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Last week I gave a talk on the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path and having given a series of talks over many Mondays on the each of the steps of the Eightfold Path. And uh, I thought this evening could be uh, the, the final talk on this series because um, the Eightfold Path is, um, well, it's the most famous and most common description of Buddhist practice, uh, kind of the reference point, one of the primary reference points for Buddhist practice, uh, what's uh, tucked away in the ancient teachings of the Buddha, there is also a tenfold path. And, um, and it's interesting to look at this tenfold path uh, because it's a continuation of the eightfold path. The tenfold path, the ninth step, is called uh, right knowledge. And the tenth is right deliverance or right liberation. So, the Eightfold Path, uh, again, is the probably the most standard depiction of the Buddhist practice. And it is uh, divided into three different areas, which um, I kind of like to just kind of lightly refer to um, the, the head, the body, and the heart. So Buddhist practice involves an uh, integrated approach to spirituality that includes all of who we are, uh, all the aspects of who we are. And, um, <clears throat> and so the idea in the Eightfold Path is to create a broad integrated foundation or broad integrated approach to a particular path for a particular goal. And um, so the first uh, area, the head, has to do with our uh, cognitive function, our understanding, our thinking. How do we understand what we're doing? How, we, how do we understand uh, the way forward in this life, how to live a life? Because most of us are not going to be sitting on the couch watching TV all day. We're going to be engaged in the world in some kind of, um, hopefully, meaningful way. Some people are looking for a meaningful way for being in the world. And one of the approaches that some people take is... Um, to try to deal with some of the deepest existential, deepest human issues, struggles, problems that uh, humans can have. And, um, and so, um, what are those issues and what is the resolution of those issues? What's the way through these issues? Or how do we deal with those issues? And the Buddha uh, had his answer to that question. And his answer was to look at the cause or the root source for what he called suffering. The word is dukkha, which uh, you know is many, many things that cause us distress, cause us difficulties, cause us tension, despair, depression, discouragement, fear, uh, anger, all kinds of uh, you know emotional difficulties and challenges that we have. And it's remarkable for me in this role I have as a Buddhist teacher uh, to encounter so many people who are struggling with some of the greatest struggles that human beings have to struggle with. And um, one of the things that I try to reassure them with or try to offer is that 
the practice that we teach uh, in Buddhism, practice of meditation, of mindfulness, the Eightfold Path, is, uh, wasn't originally designed for stress reduction. It wasn't originally designed to just kind of fit into your society in a nice way and get along with things. But it was really designed as a very radical form of therapy to deal with some of the deepest, the deepest uh, existential challenges that a human being has. And so the beginning of the path involves uh, understanding that, understanding how it works, how there's a particular approach of how to find this path that Buddhism offers. And so uh, it's understanding something about suffering and how to address our suffering. So this is the first step of the Eightfold Path. And then also understanding that if you're going to walk on this path, uh, it, uh, a particular attitude is very helpful. And so we want to try to cultivate an attitude or cultivate an approach that is conducive for walking a path to become free of suffering. And so if you, what you want to do is become free of suffering, it doesn't work to be cruel. It's, uh, it doesn't work to be, have a lot of ill will. It doesn't work to be uh, really greedy, attached to things. And so if you want to, to find a path to peace and freedom, to liberation, to peace, um, there has to be some attitude that you're going to, the attitude that's the opposite of those. An attitude of attempting at least, or directing oneself towards compassion, directing oneself towards goodwill, and directing oneself to an ability to let go, renunciation, some renunciation, because if you hold on tight, nothing's going to work. Um, this Recently I met with a woman who has a debilitating health condition that uh, might not be curable and progressively getting worse and worse and her capacity to take care of herself is decreasing. And, but she was talking to me. She would chosen to talk to me. And uh, we're meaning a Buddhist teacher at a Buddhist center. And I kind of take that seriously that when someone comes to talk about some of the big challenges like this, you know, losing her physical abilities, be able to take care of herself, no, no longer being able to walk, that, um, you know, that's a, quite a serious challenge someone has. And, um, and it uh, gives birth to a lot of fear, um, anxiety, uh, probably sometimes anger, despair. And, um, but she comes to a Buddhist tenter to talk to a Buddhist teacher. And so uh, I feel like I have permission, I feel like I'm called upon, it's almost my responsibility to offer uh, the radical therapy that the Buddha had to offer in those kinds of circumstances. I wasn't going to offer her a cure, that wasn't what I was doing, and she'd chosen to come to me, right? So in her situation, I told her that uh, what the, one of the core aspects of this practice is to let go. And that's what she needed to do at this point, if there was no cure, she should try to get a cure, she don't give up the attempt to do that but she should learn to let go. Let go of her abilities, let go of control, let go of taking care of herself. And let go is deeply, because if she didn't let go, it was going to be, uh, it was going to be torn out of her hands. And that's, not, that's going to be more painful. And I told her letting go is, um, she only knows if she's let go, if she feels lighter because of it. If she feels uh, sometimes some joy or some lightness or ease in the letting go. If she lets go and feels neutral, she hasn't really let go. And her task now is to learn how to let go. And so I went through a whole period of time with her uh, exploring how someone will let go 
in a realistic way, in a meaningful way. I didn't want to give her, you know, sometimes it can be very naive and simplistic to say, oh, just let go, you won't have any problems. Because um, it can do someone a disservice. But with her, it felt like she was so up, up against, uh, you know, this hugely dramatic difficulty and challenge. It seemed like what was really to do was to, was to, was to support her and help her and guide her in what she had to let go of, the beliefs, the identities, the ideas, the feelings that uh, stood in the way, that, that kind of w- weighed her down, that made the whole thing, the whole experience of this debilitating illness much worse than it needed to be. So, the let go, this is a very important part of this, the attitude of letting go, willingness to let go, if what you want is the radical peace that the Buddha had to teach. So, understanding these things is the first part. This has to do with the mind. And then the body has to do with our behavior. And so, what do we do with our, our speech? What do we do with our body? And so, to, uh, to do things with our, our, our behavior, which is in harmony, aligned with being peaceful, with uh, creating a conditions of uh, freedom from suffering and harm. And then the last of the Eightfold Path, uh, I like to say, is of the heart because it has to do with some of the deepest aspects of our inner life that uh, we begin tending, we, uh, we cultivate, we develop, we care for. We care for the quality of our heart, of our deep inner life. And this is uh, what a big part of the path of meditation is about. The mindfulness has to do, in part, with cultivating a high quality of an inner life. Not just being mindful of what is, but in the process of being mindful for what is, Cultivating a heart which is settled, which is peaceful, which is relaxed, which is open, has some, some experience of peace. And then the final step of the Eightfold Path, right concentration, is also creating the kind of steadiness and strength of the mind that then is able to see deeply, uh, deeply to the very bottom of the heart, to what's really there. So, uh, so the head, the body, the heart, this Eightfold Path, is, I see it as an integrated approach. But the point of it, following that path is not just to follow the path for its own sake, but rather to create the conditions that um, bring us a lasting peace, the conditions that help us to see in a deep way. And so the, the ninth step, when the, when the tenfold, step is, uh, tenfold path is mentioned, is called right knowledge. And the idea of knowledge and seeing is really crucial, uh, really central to the whole enterprise of Buddhist practice. Uh, what this means, uh, knowledge and seeing, knowing and seeing, is at some point the whole, the, whole, uh, the Buddhist practice involves knowing and seeing something for yourself. It's uh, not uh, taking a book, which I'm going to read from maybe in a few minutes, and, uh, and then you know, saying, well, now I understand what's going on. Understanding is only a preliminary uh, aspect of the Buddhist path. The path is supposed to lead to a deep, direct knowing that you know for yourself something. And, a deep, and so the words knowing and seeing, those kind of terms are used for this idea of direct seeing, direct knowing that you have for yourself. And um, so then the question is, what is it you directly know? What is right knowing? What's the right knowledge? Um, right knowledge sounds a bit frightening to, you know, if you're uninitiated to this. It's like, well, now I'm supposed to go to get a PhD in Buddhism to understand all this knowledge of Buddhism. So it's not knowledge in the abstract, but it's knowing something directly and personally for yourself. So here I want to read, um, I think a quite remarkable passage. It's uh, 
from the discourse called the uh, uh, simile of the cloth from the middle length discourses. <clears throat> and um, suppose a cloth was stained and a dyer dipped it with some dye blue, yellow, red, or pink. It would look poorly dyed and impure in color. Why is that? Because uh, of the stain in the cloth. So too, when the mind is stained, and um, unhappy results come about. Suppose a cloth were pure and bright, and a dyer dipped it in some, <coughs> di- some dye, whether blue, yellow, red, or pink. It would look well dyed and pure in color. Why is that? Because of the purity of the cloth. So too, when the mind is undefiled, um, good results are expected. Um, What, monks, are the imperfections that stain the mind? Covetous, 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 Covetousness and, uh, and greed are imperfections that stain the mind. Ill will, anger, resentment, contempt, insolence, envy, avarice, deceit, fraud, con- uh, conceit, arrogance, vanity are all defilements that stain the mind. So here what he's saying that if you have a mind that has these kinds of uh, activities in the mind, um, uh, it's kind of like a, a, a stained cloth. You can't really stain it well. You can't. It's not useful for the diet for the person who's going to dye it. So the same way, a mind that's uh, inflamed with these things, caught up in these things, doesn't see clearly, doesn't understand very well, um, is not able to get settled, stays agitated. Uh, it's not a mind that's useful for the purposes of finding peace and, and, and happiness. Um, so then it goes on. Knowing that covetousness and greed are imperfections that stay in the mind, uh, a monastic abandons it. Knowing ill will stains the mind, one abandons it. Knowing that anger, resentment, contempt, and all these things stain the mind, one abandons it. One lets go of it. Easier said than done, but one lets go of it. When a monastic has known that these are stains, are imperfections that defile the mind and has abandoned it, uh, then the person has confidence in the Buddha. One has confidence in the Sangha and one has confidence in the Dharma and confidence in the Sangha. So, the idea here is that to know something for yourself, to know what it's like to have, for example, ill will or hate in your mind, to know the heat and the tension that brings, the discomfort that brings, to know how it stains and colors your vision of the world if you go around with ill will, and then to let go of it and know what the mind is like when it's let go of that ill will, to know the absence of that agitation, absence of that uh, biased way of seeing, absence of that um, um, agitation that's there with that. That is something we can know directly. You can know when the mind is tense and you can know when the mind is relaxed. You can know when the mind is agitated and you can know when the mind is at peace. 
You can know when the mind is filled with fear and you can know what it's like when the fear is abated. You could, these are things, the inner psychological state, the quality of your mind, your heart, is something you can know. And, and when things are troublesome for the heart, you can know the troublesome nature of it, the feeling of it, and you can know what it's like when it's longer there, when it's past, when it's abandoned and gotten in peace. This is what uh, the nature of the kind of thing the Buddha talks about when he talks about knowing something directly. So it might, I don't know how, you know, maybe it doesn't seem so remarkable to hear this, but um, the language of Buddhism sometimes is quite lofty. Enlightenment is a quite lofty term. Who knows what it means, right? I mean, some people, a lot of people use a term without knowing what it means. And um, they have associations with a grand world religion like, religion like Buddhism and uh, people become highly attained. They must know something really mystical and mysterious and marvelous and profound that, um, that certainly, you know, is something that you, you don't know about. But here it's pointing to something I would suggest is re- relatively mundane, relatively simple, something that most people, have, I hope, have had some experience with, knowing the difference between a time in your life when you've been uh, caught up in something like some of these stains, some of these challenges, some of these, what's here is called imperfections, uh, some of these uh, struggles of the heart and the mind, and then to have the experience of it no longer being there and feeling and seeing directly the the palpable difference between these two states. This can be known. Now, some people just have, uh, you know, emotions come and go. Sometimes they stay for long periods of time, certain states, and then they go. Um, and so the, the uh, you know, people can experience the presence of certain things and the absence of certain things. Um, but most people have no sense of any mastery over that, any role in that. And so the idea of letting go is the middle way. This is the, or the, 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 the approach of Buddhism to learn a technique, learn a way to train the mind. So when you're caught in something, you learn to uncaught. When you're tight in the grip of something, you learn to release the grip. And that's the whole training is about learning to do that so that it isn't simply you know the presence of a stain in the mind and the absence, but you know how it's abandoned, how you let go of it. And you have the ability to do it. You have the flexibility, the strength of mind to be able to, to do that. Is that following me? So, so it's not offering some mystical teaching. It's not offering some um, uh, supernatural teachings. It's not offering, t- telling us we have to believe in something that um, you know, cannot be really be proved. Um, uh, which, you know, it's a fair number of religions in the world offer a lot of teachings which are hard to believe if you don't really grow up in that religion. But here, it's offering something which um, in modern terms, and here in the West at least, could be called psychological terms. And psychological in the sense that it's something that's accessible to our own inner life or mind through our own ability to see something directly. And you see the proof of it for yourself. You don't have to be, you know, be convinced once you see that this works. So once you see what's here called a stain, and you see that you can let go of it, and you see the relief, the peace that comes from it, that gives, that's when a person has a realistic um, uh, confidence in the Buddha. Um, the, the term here in this text that Bhikkhu Bodhi translates, he translates it as perfect confidence in the Buddha. 
But the, um, uh, I, I'm not sure, I, I doubt that that's the right, best translation. It might be acceptable, but not the best. Because the word that he translates as perfect uh, could also mean uh, based on knowledge, based on knowing. So it's confidence based on knowing something. You know for yourself this movement of the mind. And then you extrapolate from that, well, if this is a little, little taste of it that I have, then the Buddha represents someone who must have done it to a much greater degree. He represents a possibility of, of uh, really radically um, um, removing the stains from the heart, the mind, l- radically letting go so that there can be some peace. So the Eightfold Path creates the foundation so that we have a fair chance of looking deeply into our mind to learn how to let go in a deep way. And for this to happen, um, uh, there has to be a lot of, um, a fair, fair amount of peace or ease or stillness. And so the Eightfold Path is creating a mind or heart which is not agitated. Um, the, the, the behavior part, the middle sections of the Eightfold Path, have a lot to do about behaving in such a way that we're not going to continue to be agitated, stir ourselves up. It's very hard to be peaceful if we're being unethical. It's very hard to be peaceful if if our life is harming other people or harming ourselves. So we want to create a very... Buddhism offers, uh, suggests a very high standard of ethical behavior so that um, the heart can feel at ease. So we can really kind of not feel troubled by anything. So when we sit down to meditate, we're not troubled by what we've done and we don't feel remorse and regret and are, you know, churning away with those things. And then the function of this mindfulness and concentration and meditation practice is also to begin softening and relaxing the mind uh, so that um, it can be here in the present moment in a stable, relaxed, soft way. So this is why we say that you should be very careful in meditation that you're not striving too hard, trying to get somewhere too much. Because usually, especially here in the West, a lot of people who strive and push to try to get someplace usually just stir themselves up even more. And so um, meditation has a lot to do about relaxing, letting go, settling into the present moment. Not because the present moment in and of itself is um, the place to be, but the pres- by settling in and relaxing into the present moment um, a lot gives us a vantage point then to go deeper into uh, to see the psychology of where the clinging is, what was, what's going on. So then, at some point, we, get, uh, we begin letting go. The mind lets go. Uh, at first, maybe it's in small ways, and then with time, it becomes in bigger ways. Some of you have had experiences of letting go that are so, so mundane and simple, it means letting go of your impatience at the red light driving your car. You can feel some subtle tension, and you feel this is not any point, I can't, you know, and, and light's not going to turn green faster because I'm tense. And so you kind of let go, perhaps, in that moment, a little bit. And that's a little bit. You see the difference. You can know, if you, if you pay attention, you can know the difference from that between what it feels like to be tense and what it feels like to let go. So that's a small, mundane thing, I think. But then uh, the practice is to begin applying that same principle to more and more areas of our life. So some of the deepest things we hold on to are identity, our desire to be, you know... Uh, to present ourselves in a certain way, our security, all the things, all the kind of deep and important things that people want, uh, that are reasonable maybe to want, but we cling to and depend, our happiness, well-being depends on it. Which, or say it in a different way, 
we get agitated when we don't get it. Or we get agitated when things we don't want uh, remain. So what do we have to let go of? What do we have to let go of? So that we can know for ourselves the value of letting go. So we can know for ourselves the difference between an agitated mind and a peaceful mind. So that this, this is the ninth step of the Eightfold Path, is to begin to cultivate and develop that knowledge, to see and understand that. And to cultivate that knowledge, I think one of the things that's very helpful is to start appreciating what it feels like when you're no longer in the grip of what you were in the grip of. So if you're in the grip of anger, or in the grip of greed, or grip of fear, uh, you might be relieved to have it no longer there, but then you're busy with life and you're on to the next thing. You hardly notice anymore, just, you know. But um, to actually spend some time um, uh, acknowledging, appreciating the difference between the inner state that's caught and the inner state that's free um, provides you with this direct knowledge that Buddhism says is right knowledge, that Buddhism says is really the, uh, at the heart of what the whole enterprise is about. And if you can start seeing that distinction between being caught and being free <coughs> and appreciating it in small and big ways in your life, it begins to strengthen the mind's or the heart's appreciation for freedom. It starts uh, strengthening, appreciating um, the state of being peaceful and at ease. It's very, very easy to overlook the value and the nourishment that can come from peaceful states, from no longer being caught, from being settled, to being at ease. So part of this practice of right knowledge is partly a result of letting go, the result of the path and letting go in deep way, and then knowing the results of that. So then, if you uh, start appreciating that and appreciating, and you kind of extrapolate, you know, you know, this thing about the red light, you know, I can see, you know, like it's to my benefit to let go of the tension, the impatience at the red light because, you know, it's not going to help me to get anywhere faster. So at least for these three seconds, I can settle back and breathe and I feel better. And then take something as mundane and simple like that and maybe extrapolate or, pre- extrapolate or imagine what would, what would this be like if the same movement was done in some of the deepest uh, existential uh, issues in our life? What would it be like to, to let go in such a deep way or to f- discover ease in such a deep way that in all the endeavors that you do, as you go through your life, uh, at work, in relationships, uh, in health and lack of health, that um, there's such a deep sense of ease in the heart that you're not, you're not liable to pick something up to agitate it again. So this one thing is to let go and experience peace. The other thing is to know that peace well enough and thorough enough that you come, you come upon an opportunity to cling to something, to grab onto something, to get caught up in something, and you say, no, thank you. I think this peace I have is valuable. I think it's more valuable and more important than uh, the reasons I have for getting agitated, the reasons I have for clinging or resisting or getting upset. So again, this right knowledge is very important because it it provides a reference point that helps us to begin debate, the debate with ourselves about what we're doing in our mind. 
And one of the great debates from the vantage point of peace, some sense of ease and peace, is, is it worth clinging to what you're about to cling to? Is what you're afraid about really worth being afraid about? Is what you're greedy about really worth being greedy about? If the cost of, that, of those states is you lose that peace. You probably have lots of reasons to argue it's okay to lose your peace. But, is, you know, but part of the function of right knowledge is to give you a different vantage point to have that discussion with yourself. And to question, is it really necessary not to worry? Is it really necessary to want this so much, to expect this so much, to, uh, to define my life by the, in this way? It doesn't matter so much what people think about me, that, what, that someone thinks poorly about me, that I need to get all worked up to try to talk to them and hammer into them that I'm different. <clears throat> what, what causes, you know, is it possible to keep the ease in the heart? So this is a kind of the... Kind of the, 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 one of the possibilities that comes from this ninth step of the path. Uh, because we know something for ourselves, we can then use that as a reference point. So then if you continue this process of letting go, of practicing, going deeper and deeper into the mind and letting go more thoroughly, then at some point uh, you have an experience of greater and greater uh, liberation. Bhikkhubodhi uh, in this translation translates as deliverance. And... Um, and, um, but one sense of freedom and ease becomes greater and greater. And this experience of freedom um, the culmination of the Eightfold Path is described this way in the text. And I'll, I'll read you uh, Bhikkhubodhi's translation, the standard way of translating this, and then I'll offer you a, um, a different translations that's, uh, uh, that, are, that the, the Pali words allow for. Um, so this eighthfold path leads to complete disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, and to nirvana. That's nice, right? So, disenchantment leads to complete disenchantment. So, rather than translating this as disenchantment, I, I would translate this as uh, leads to breaking the spell, breaking the enchantment. Doesn't that sound better? So, some of you are in a spell. So it leads to complete, the complete breaking of the spell. Instead of dispassion, to fading of lust. Uh, this is interesting. So to cessation, the word neroda could also mean destruction. And some of you know about Noah Levine and Against the Stream and the Dharma Punks, and they have these sweatshirts that say, you know, meditate and destroy. You know, which you know, uh, you know, kind of, kind of like makes us baby boomers kind of look twice. <laughs> Peace and love, meditate and destroy. What? <laughs> but this word neuroda uh, means that uh, no, means usually translates cessation. Also means to destroy. So isn't that great? So break the spell, 
fading of lust, destroy. To peace. I leave that word alone. I like that word in English. And then to direct knowledge. So here, I leave that alone too. The idea of direct knowledge means personal knowledge, knowing and seeing for yourself. Uh, to enlightenment. I don't know, you know, it's the English word enlightenment. I don't know if it's a useful word to keep using over and over again. I, I myself prefer the word awakening uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and then to Nibbana. And the etymology of the word Nibbana uh, uh, lends itself to also being translated as release, to be released, so rather, than, rather than being bondage, to be released, to let go, no longer be holding on. So this is the goal of the Eightfold Path, is to do these things. And, um, and, the, and as the Eightfold Path becomes mature, then it, um, it gives, uh, gives rise to right knowledge, which is a direct knowing and seeing for yourself uh, this process of clinging and letting go and appreciating that, being nourished by that, beginning to use, use that as a greater and greater reference point so you're less inclined to pick up your clinging and more inclined to let go of what remains until at some point there's a, a much more radical and thoroughgoing uh, letting go which the, the, the tradition calls deliverance or uh, freedom or liberation. And this then uh, gives birth to a what's called an unshakable peace, unshakable deliverance of the mind. So the eighthfold path that I've been talking about for these last couple of few months is a, uh, a extremely practical series of practices and tools and approaches and understandings that are beneficial for anybody's life. Um, uh, you don't have to be interested in liberation and this whole step here. That is, you don't have to be interested in right knowledge and right deliverance and freedom. Um, it can just help in the ordinary activities of our life to live a better life. But also, uh, the way it was designed was was designed for a very a radical transformation of the person who walks the path, uh, and it's con- and that radical transformation has been called by the tradition um, a path a, a transformation that makes it, that ennobles the person who gets transformed. <coughs> the person gets enno- ennobled or or becomes more worthy or becomes more, they know, like, there's some kind of dignity in that freedom and that in that peace. I think it's one of the great goals of human life is to, and gives a lot of meaning to our path in our life. The idea that there is a path to this kind of freedom, there is a path to this kind of resolution of suffering. It's not a path that's esoteric and mystical, but rather it's built on very practical uh, things we can do and very practical insights and knowledges and what we can see in our own psychology. But to do it thoroughly and completely is one of the great and valuable tasks Someone should do it. And, um, and a lot of people should do some of it. And every step along the way is worthwhile. No amount of practice is ever wasted. So, tenfold path. Right knowledge and right deliverance. So we have a few minutes. If you'd like to ask any questions about any of this... You're welcome to do it.
<clears throat> so, oh. yeah. what's your uh, when we are in the heat of the passions? Yeah. How do you remember the eightfold path? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do to recall it in your consciousness? So, I think I think if you're lost, it's hopeless. <laughs> I mean, I don't see how you, you know, either you're here or not. If you're not, then there's no hope. But uh, unless you plan ahead. And if you know you have a tendency in the heat of passion to lose your mindfulness and presence, then, then it's, you know, I don't think you can do anything. But you, then you can, if it happens often enough, then plan ahead and have things that remind you. You know, so, you know, so I don't know what you want to do to remind you, but have big signs in your house. <laughs> and the, the bigger problem you have, the bigger the sign should be. <laughs> you know, paint your whole door going in, you know. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, that's one approach. But if what you're asking is that you feel yourself in the heat of passion and stuff and you understand it, you see that it's happening, but it has the upper hand and you have the underhand, what do you do? One of the uh, really important uh, practices that uh, the Buddha taught was the practice of restraint. So one of the things, one of the really, I think, really important trainings and ways to get uh, develop inner strength is um, to know how to restrain yourself from making any mistakes. So if you know you're in the grip of heat and passion and anger, um, don't say anything. <laughs> Go for a walk. Go to bed, take a shower, go for a run, do anything, uh, but act on the anger or speak it. And then, and then when you've cooled down, um, maybe then you can bring mindfulness to it and explore what, cool down enough, doesn't mean it'll go away, but then you can sit quietly and look at it more deeply, understand what's going on and be more wise. And then once you've become, so once you've cooled down and become wise, um, then you might talk to someone about it, what's going on. But restraint, the practice of restraint, is, uh, I think is um, a really important practice. Hold your tongue. And sometimes it can be the, the most challenging thing you can do. Because it's, you know, the, the, the impulses are so strong, but to have a commitment to not to act. goes a little bit against maybe the grain of what some people hear in, here in the West where you're supposed to express your emotions and act on them and stuff. And, but there's really a lot of wisdom sometimes to restraining. Uh, not repressing. Repressing is not healthy. Someone else? Yes, please. If you could use the mic, there's on the stage there, Mike. No, oh, there it is. It should have the green light on it. Hello. Uh, can you hear the mic? Or? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Keep it close to your mouth. Okay. Um, you're saying about uh, knowing something fully versus knowledge, right? Yeah. So what if you completely know something, right, within yourself, but someone else knows something else as well? but is in complete opposite to what you feel you know. <laughs> and what they know has like direct impact to what happens in your life, but yet you feel like you should be somewhere else. And so, so then, like, too, you're also saying about letting go, right? 
So what's the difference between like letting go versus like being like uh, like rolling over and let something happen yeah. that you feel okay. shouldn't happen? Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm I'm up to the task of answering answering your question. So I'll do my best and see. So the um, um, there are, maybe it's helpful to distinguish between two domains of life, just for the purposes of answering the question, two domains. There's the domain of our heart, and there's the domain of our actions in the world. And, uh, <clears throat> and when we talk about actions in the world and how to get along with people and how, what, you know, how to work you know, in this complicated social world and differences people have, it takes a lot of street smarts. It takes a lot of life experience. It takes a lot of intelligence. It takes a lot to kind of sort that out. Um, and you might need to know a lot about all kinds of issues to do that well. That person might have grown up in a very different culture than you. They have a whole different assumptions about what it means to be a human being. And there's just so much going on that's so different between you that um, unless you understand where they came from and how they were trained, you just miss each other. So it needs a lot of, you know, something. Um, so that's, that's the domain of the action in the world. But the domain of your heart, that's a different kind of knowing. Um, that's no, and it's, it's, a, it's a particular aspect of your heart that Buddhism focuses, I, I believe, focuses on most. And that as you really understand how your heart, in your own heart, in your own heart, in yourself, what it's like for you to cling and what it's like to be f- not cling. You know when you're caught by something and you know when you're not. You know when you're compassionate and you know when you're angry. You know when you're generous and you know when you're miserly. You know these qualities of your heart. This you know directly. And because it's your heart, no one else, you know, that's something you know for sure. And there's no argument about that. If they want to argue with you, uh, you could get riled up <laughs> and upset that they disagree with what you think is in your heart. Or you can just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, I know. I know what's there. And so in the domain of... The, so in the situation with someone who knows something different than you about the world and what's important, what needs to happen, as in Buddhist practice, what you do in those conversation is you would track what's going on in your heart so that you could know for yourself whether you're getting riled up, whether you're getting caught, whether you're getting resistant, whether you're getting angry or not. Are you staying peaceful? And that's the domain of direct knowledge that Buddhism is most concerned about. Is that, is, that a, is that distinction useful for your question, or did I miss you? I followed it. Was it, was it addressing your concern? Yeah, yeah. So it's an important one, because to use the word uh, to know something for oneself is sometimes, um, um, uh, how to say is, uh, is sometimes um, used too casually or too <coughs> sloppily what it means. And um, sometimes people say, uh, uh, I know something because I think it. <laughs> Whatever, you know. And so their opinion becomes a knowing. And one of the things I think that's been a l- little bit overdone here in California in the last years is, the expression, um, uh, my truth, you know, you know, my truth, and you have your truth, and I have my truth. You know, it's basically saying, I have my opinion, and you have your opinion. <laughs> and, uh, but it's couched in this very kind of, you know, 
ultimate language and you can't say anything anymore. You'll find your truth, you know. <laughs> and um, the, um, the um, so I mean, sometimes it's true, that kind of language, but sometimes it's overdone, I think, when it's opinion. And also it's uh, Buddhism, you know, not, not for this evening, but uh, Buddhism down through the centuries has had a, a, a very careful analysis of what you can directly know and what is inference, what are interpretations of events, what are uh, conjectures. And um, in order so you can stay close to what you can directly know. And so, um, um, so for, you know, I have a story I like to tell of um, a study I read long, long ago. It was 1980s. It was a study of children in New York City who had near-death experiences. And sure enough, they had some of the classic experiences that people have in near-death experiences. Kind of a white light, a tunnel, and seeing some great figure at the end of the tunnel. So it must be true, right? When you see Buddha at the end of the tunnel at your near-death experience, the Buddha must really exist, right? That's the proof of it, you know, at other time, right? So now you know the Buddha is there because you've seen it at the end of the tunnel. So what these kids, there's a high percentage of these kids in New York City, you know, young kids who had near-death experiences, they saw the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so, do the Ninja Turtles really exist? So, so, maybe Buddha really exists someplace in heaven, but, uh, but that, kind of, that kind of study raises a question mark. When someone says, I, you know, I know the Buddha is true because I saw him in my whatever, um, you know, the fact that you see something uh, is not necessarily a symptom that it's true. One of the uh, one of the humorous episodes in the, this text here, ancient Buddhist text, is when the Buddha describes how the great god Brahma. Brahma is kind of like the great god of the Indian pantheon, and how he thought he was almighty, <clears throat> and how he, cre- he thought he created the universe. And the Buddha describes it as a misunderstanding, <laughs> and he jumped to conclusions that weren't valid. So this idea of being very careful about seeing something. And jumping to conclusion is something Buddhism is very concerned about. Um, so the care, there's a lot of care around this issue of what we know and what we can know. But the essential issue is not what we know about heavens and hells, and, but rather what we know about our own heart. And so we don't want to get, in Buddhism, I think there's a care to not get sidetracked or, or distracted from caring for your own heart by all these other opinions and ideas and interpretations of life that some people take as being very important. Um, so to know your own heart and to know a particular thing about your heart, to know about what helps your heart be at peace. Okay, so I hope this was interesting, useful. And um, may you all walk the tenfold path.